welcome to Leader Flow, hydration for thirsty leaders, a preeminent source of curated world-class leadership resources that will enable you to grow your influence and multiply your impact. Alex Sapala and Steve Kane are experienced leaders in both the profit and non-profit sectors, giving them a unique vantage point which enables them to deliver multi-dimensional leadership principles and practices to help maximize your leadership flow. Let's join the conversation. G'day, Steve Kane. Good to see you again today, my friend. I really appreciate you uh, making some time for us. Today, I, I want to ask you a question. I, I know that you're a skilled individual and you're a skilled communicator and connector. Do you believe that you can read what your customers and what your clients are readily thinking? I mean, imagine having that ability to be able to read people like a book during any meetings, during any interviews or any negotiations, and even how to detect deception when someone's actually lying to you. Do you think that that would be a handy skill for you to have? Oh, absolutely. I mean, sometimes you're, you're hearing somebody say one thing and then you're looking at their body language and you're going, hmm, I'm not sure if I'm believing this, and uh, but sometimes I'm not 100% sure which cues I, I should take uh, notice of and I've misunderstood someone's body language. Or, or maybe, you know, in, in this whole thing, you, you want to just use your power of persuasion and influence to get your message across clearly and effectively to others. Mm. Our next guest, Steve Van Apperen, is an expert in this field, and some people even call him the human lie detector. And Steve has spoken at hundreds of conferences and seminars around the world, attended by thousands of delegates. He's delivered training programs and one-on-one -on -one training to CEOs, government departments, executives, fund managers, analysts, recruiters, sales teams, managers, investigators, the financial sector, media, and many others. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. We're honoured to have thanks you for, with us. Thanks very much for having me. Mate, it is so good to have you. There's a lot of what you've done, which is which is incredible, a journey that you've been on. What I'd like us to do, if we could, just to start off, is if you could give us a little bit of your background that led you into becoming the human lie detector, shall we say. Sure. I, um, I'd spent 14 years in uh, South Australian Victoria Police and at the time, I was a detective and I was always fascinated about what made you know serial killers and serial sex offenders tick. So I also had a background in criminology and I thought, you know, I always was interested in why some of the detectives that I used to work with were not that good at reading people or detecting deception and others were okay. So what I did was I went to the FBI Behavioral Sciences Unit. Back then, it was, they were based in Quantica. And I, I, the more I learned about profiling, the more interested I became in cognitive and behavioural interviewing. So it got me thinking that why was it that some people, when I interviewed them, would make admissions and others wouldn't? And what we know through research is the three main reasons why people confess to crimes is one, they like the interviewer, two, to get it off their chest, and three, they believe the evidence is so overwhelmingly against them that further resistance is futile. So that made me really think, you know, what was it about my interviewing uh, technique or style that in the past, before I did all my training in the States, 
that was uh, sort of you know, letting me down, really. So while I was there, one of the um, agents said, look, Steve, do you use uh, polygraph testing in your police department? And back then we didn't. And they said, oh, look, we use it for frauds, extortions, homicides, sexual offences and so on. Why don't you come over here? You can train with us and take your technology, uh, take the technology back to your police department, which is effectively what I did. So I trained initially at Western Oregon University, um, which is the APA, American Polygraph Association accredited uh, training faculty. I did my polygraph internship with LAPD, um, also time with the US uh, LA County Sheriff, LAPD and a number of other law enforcement agencies over there. And then there was one particular interview I sat in and I thought, wouldn't it be great to have the skill sets to work out when people align to you by analysing the content and structure rather than just relying on someone and looking away. So I got back and um, I started using behavioural analysis interviews in some of the interviews that I did uh, when I was in the police. And to my surprise, I was amazed at how many people were making admissions and confessions. And it really started making me think, you know, I honestly believe there's no such thing as a bad interviewee, but there's definitely such a thing as a bad interviewer because they don't ask the right questions. So I can teach anyone in half a day how to ask you know, decent questions, good uh, direct probing questions. But what I say when I run training courses for intelligence agencies and police departments is you need to think of yourself as not simply a question asker, but an analyst of human behaviour. If I'm interviewing somebody, I want to see whether or not my question has become the threatening stimulus, which has induced a change in that person's behaviour. If so, why? So after all the training, I then then was offered a a book deal and uh, the book did quite well and then I started uh, being approached by speaking bureaus uh, here in Australia. And then I did some work over in the US and then um, I got signed up to a large speaking bureau over there. And it just went on and just grew and grew. And um, now I literally travel around the world teaching people how to detect deception through verbal, nonverbal, paralinguistic, and uh, analyzing the content and structure. That's fabulous. Wow. So, so if we go back to the time when you first did your training, you were still a member of the Victoria Police or had you left at that stage? Yeah, I was still a uh, member. I was gazetted uh, at, as a detective at Flemington CIB down here in Melbourne. Right. One thing that we're about from a transformation point of view is, is understanding the motivation behind people's decisions to go off and do what they do. So I want to tap into that that memory bank of yours now and, and to look back and say, what was it that created the impetus for you to from go from a, a reasonably paid government job into the unknown space of being your own employer, having your own business? Yeah, look, it was, it was really interesting. After doing all my training and, and what a lot of people – didn't realise at the time was I'd spent only $100,000 of my own money, you know, travelling backwards and forwards and training and whatnot, all in my own time. Um, and I had uh, brought the office in charge of LAPD Polygraph Unit back to Victoria to do a joint presentation to Force Command at the time. How did that go and when I, you I, first came back and with some new kind of technology or new ways of doing things? Did you find any resistance initially or was it smooth? Yeah, I did. I, I think it... it, it there was a lot of resistance and um, I said look I, I've seen how this type of technology can capture capture uh, killers mm. and I've seen how effective it is if used properly I mean it's not the panacea for every investigation I've, I've worked on 81 homicide cases and I can tell you when people are lying even before we uh, do a polygraph test because I can only test somebody if they voluntarily consent mm. so 
you, effective interviewers need to analyse what those telltale signs and cues are, which obviously we'll go over uh, a little later. But the, the impetus for, for me was uh, to to get out and actually, uh, after realising that uh, there was a bit of um, uh, scepticism, mm. uh, I, I thought, well, look, the only way I can move ahead, because at that time I had uh, accreditation, if I didn't do X number of tests, I would have lost that accreditation. It was quite an expensive exercise. So I thought, you know, I had to make the decision of going out alone. And back then, there was no uh, polygraph company uh, at all. So it was a huge uh, monumental step. But ironically, after I left, within about three or four months, I was contacted by Ron Eddles, who back then was in charge of the uh, cold case unit, Homicide Squad. And he said, look, Steve, we've got a number of cases we'd like you to help with. So it was almost like I had to leave the police to um, obtain that degree of credibility or uh, being an expert in that field before they actually invited me back. So uh, what I found was the hierarchy uh, wasn't that you know, uh, straightforward in making decisions. My, I, I remember at the time I did a huge proposal and um, – you know, there was more fear of the unknown. But, I mean, at that time, I mean, I'd seen how the police departments had used, you know, behavioural analysis interviewing and, and technology as an investigative aid in the absence of other forensic, scientific, medical or cooperative evidence. So I, I could see it had application and utility. Ironically, um, uh, I found that all the detectives who worked in the squads could certainly see its application and utility. But I think Force Command was worried about, you know, negative consequences or, you know, um, you know, they're a little bit adverse to criticism uh, at that time, adopt, uh, adopting new technology. Mm, yeah, right. And, that, you know, that, that, that's a big step, though, taking um, to, to, to make that uh, make that leap into your own into your own business, because really in Australia at that time, it wasn't even an emerging uh, technology. It was there was no one else out there doing it, were there? No, no. There are, there, I think there was one examiner. It wasn't a registered company, yeah. um, and he was doing ad hoc type of testing. I, I, I was the first Australian uh, to uh, do any testing, not just for Victoria Police, the major crime squad in South Australia, and AFP, and uh, had done a lot of training for intelligence agencies. Because in those days, there, there was a, a strong degree of, uh, uh, I don't know, Skepticism. So I, it didn't take me long to work out that well, you know, wouldn't it be great to have the skill set to work out when people are lying without the use of a polygraph? Mm. Um, and that's where I really sort of excelled in learning. I, I, I was just had this insatiable appetite to um, to learn as much as I could about human behaviour and analysing human behaviour and what to look for. And interestingly enough, it segued into you know um, the commercial private sector, in that you know I would have companies ring and say, look, Steve, we, some of our analysts would uh, have to go in and interview CEOs or CFOs of companies. And of course, they're going to put a positive spin on the performance of a company in an mm. effort to attract investment. Right. So how is it oh, that we can actually read these people better other than you know, due diligence and market research? So at the end of the day, who knows more about the, um, uh, the position of a company than the CEO in charge of it? Right. So um, I adapted a, a, the my training to make it more relevant so people could read their uh, customers and know what they're thinking um, and that sort of parlayed into uh, a bigger growth in the industry. Wow. Wow. I, I guess I admire that tenacity too because it's not, you took a risk but you had seen it in operation in, in LA 
and you knew that some of the stuff that you'd learned uh, worked and then you brought it back and then, you know, initially they were a little bit, uh, had reservations and then you segued into this whole area without the polygraph and just looking directly at the human being and what they were exhibiting and how they were packaging what they were saying. What are some of the key elements that um, you mentioned before, there were some elements that you can look for to kind of get a sense of whether somebody's telling you the truth or not, because truth is important to all of us, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you look around you, I mean, we, we are lied to on a daily basis. Uh, there, there are different types of lies. There are what we call uh, pro-social lies, where little white lies. Uh, but you imagine really telling everybody how you really felt. Imagine the trouble that would get you into. Yeah. So, what we do is... <laughs> Alex, I'm just picturing Alex and I doing that. I don't think it... <laughs> do it often, well, it, 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 fact... Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a fact of life that yeah. we are lied to and we lie. Mm. Now, what we need to consider is the reasons why people lie. I mean, we lie to impress a potential partner. We lie to get ahead. We lie to save face. We lie in job interviews. We lie uh, you know, in all uh, sorts of circumstances. Now... Typically, to answer your question, what what I teach people to look for, I divide it into a number of areas, and those areas are verbal. Now, remember, I can lie with words. What yeah. I say with my words is uh, effective to a certain extent. Mm. Okay. The second would be body language. So I look for conflict or contradiction between what a person is saying and what their body language is in fact oh. stating. Right. So it's really important, to, and, and I think I say this a lot, you know, I, I'm constantly contacted by the media. They'll, they'll send me a photo of, say, I don't know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, and they're both looking in opposite directions. And they'll say, what can you read from the body language here? And I can say, well, bear in mind, that photo was taken with one one-thousandth of a second. Yeah. So that tells me they're looking in opposite directions. Yeah. It tells me very little about, you know, what they're feeling or what their emotions are. So with body language, we need to benchmark, and that's what the FBI, I did a, a course, uh, and it was run by an FBI agent by the name of Ron Hilly, it was called Adaptive Interviewing. And what he says, and, and I instruct even to this day, is firstly, we have to build a rapport. Number one, essentially have to build a rapport, but also we have to benchmark behaviour. What do I mean by that? Well, when I meet somebody, and I don't care if it's an interview for a homicide or a sexual offence or, or even if it's just a meeting with somebody during the, the negotiation process in business dealings. Yeah. I will make a number of observations about their behaviour. I created what I call the 60-second profiling technique. What happens is I may ask questions, uh, historical questions, where I know neurologically they have to recall in the past. Now, people do different things. Sometimes people may look up to the left when recalling a historical event, whereas right. if they're fabricating or creating a false memory, they look in the opposite direction. But here's the issue, and I see this all the time. People say, oh, he looked away. He looked up to his left. He must have been lying. Well, the problem with that is, and I get people on stage, and I'll, uh, to, to disprove that point, I'll say, uh, tell me, what was your very first job? Now, usually they'll look up in some direction. I'll stop them before they answer the question. And the reason I stop them is to prove the point that loss of eye contact is not indicative of deception at all. Right. It's indicative of neurological recall. Right. So, I mean, it's easy enough to do. We see this all the time. You know, you ask a question, people look away while they're recalling uh, their response. Now, what is important there about the benchmarking process is what direction their eyes may have gone. So let's just say, uh, and everyone's different too. Um, let's just say, for example, they looked up to their left while recalling. 
I might ask two or three questions where neurologically they have to recall those historical events. Then if I ask them a question about whether or not they're involved in something and I see a deviation or change from that normative behaviour, maybe looking down to the right, well, that is important because that's a change in their behaviour. Now, holistically, we need to look for groups or clusters of behaviour. So in the body language sphere, I'll be looking at uh, loss of eye contact. I'll be looking at uh, hand-to-face masking, concealment and blocking behaviours, which are indicative of subconscious attempts to stop those false words coming out of a person's mouth. So when you ask somebody a question, they know they're lying. Subconsciously, and because there's more neural connections between the brain and the hands than any other part of the body. So what will happen is if we know what we're saying is factually incorrect, our hand will often go towards our mouth, but the last moment there'll be a deflection, such as a cursory rubber the nose, rubbing the eye or touching the ear or something like that. Now, if you've got a, a itchy nose, you give it a decent scratch as opposed to just a cursory touch. So yeah. that shows me that that question may have induced a degree of anxiety. But what's more important is how they answer that question. Mm. Are they answering the question succinctly or are they being evasive, omissive, dismissive, sidestepping the issue? You know, I'm going through a number of tapes at the moment for uh, uh, the media at the moment in relation to some of the premiers. Um, and down here in Melbourne, we've got uh, Daniel Andrews. Yes. So what he does is rather than risk the possibility of being caught in a lie, he'll be deflective mm. or evasive or yeah. sidestep the issue mm. but not answer the question. That's right. a red flag. Yep. So together with how people answer the question, together with body language, the third parameter we look at is what we call paralinguistic style of delivery. So I may be able to think of a lie, but can I effectively communicate that lie with believability and credibility? So remember this, for every one lie you tell, you have to invent another two or three to protect yourself from the first one. Secondly, you don't want to contradict what you've previously said. So what I found, truthful people will often uh, engage themselves in the narrative. So if I was to ask the two of you what you did yesterday, from the time you woke up to the time you went to sleep, Mm -hmm. neurologically through sensory input and historical events, you would be able to tell me what you saw, what you did, what you heard, what you felt, and the conversations that took place. Why? Because you lived through them. Mm. Whereas if you're fabricating or creating a false memory that never existed, it takes a lot of cognitive processing. Mm -hmm. And when that cognitive processing takes place, we see a number of changes. So it might be those nonverbal cues. It might be micro-expressions, which I'll talk about shortly. uh, Or it might be a series of events that you exclude yourself out of. And this Mm -hmm. is what I've seen in a lot of homicide cases. Typically, I'll get people to give me what what I call a free narrative. So I'll say, listen, so tell me what you did from... I know, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. So let's just say I'm investigating a homicide. And the pathologist has established the cause of death at 7.15 p.m. last night. And I'm asking you questions about what you did, say, from 4 to 11. You might say things like, "Uh, I went out. And then I might say, where did you go? I went to a restaurant. Then the first question after that I'll say, what restaurant did you go to? And you'll tell me. And then I'll ask, have you been to that restaurant before? There's a very good reason why I would ask that question. Mm -hmm. Because if you've been to that restaurant before, but you're lying about having gone to that restaurant last night, then you would know what the restaurant looks like and yes. uh, you know where it is and all that type of thing. But let's just say you said, I uh, went to a restaurant. It wasn't over the restaurant. Uh, it was uh, blah, 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 whatever. I'd say, okay, well, what time did you leave home? How did you get there? What was the route you took? Who did you go with there? Uh, what time did you arrive? What was on the menu? What did you order? Uh, describe the uh, waiter who served you. How much did you pay? What was the method you paid? What time did you leave? Blah, 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 blah. Now, those questions would create a lot of cognitive loading if you're making them up on the fly. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's clever. 
And, and, and I've, I've often said to a lot of homicide investigators, I don't care how well prepared you are. You cannot possibly pre-anticipate every question that I'm likely to ask you. So part of the behaviour analysis interviewing is I'll ask questions that I'll look for certain responses. So typically what we find, truthful people will take ownership. Truthful people will um, not only tell you what happened, but they'll tell you often how they felt about the issue. Mm-hmm. Whereas deceptive people can't do that because that would implicate them. The second thing I see is deceptive people exclude themselves out of the narrative. I'll use a, a couple of examples. How people use pronouns is very important. So if I said, what did you do yesterday? You'd say, I woke up, I had breakfast, I walked the dog, I had a shower. Now, that may sound very basic, but what I'm looking for is personal pronouns in the right context and the right place. When you said, I woke up, you're including yourself. You didn't say woke up. If you said woke up, then I, the first thing I'd say is, why are you excluding yourself from the narrative or the story? Right. Or if you say, went to the shop, what you didn't say is more important than what you did say. So in this case, it would be, you didn't say, I went to the shop. Yeah. So pronouns are very important in detecting deception or uh, excluding yourself out of the narrative. To give you some examples, um, I remember the Sunday night program asked me to analyze some uh, media interviews. And part of the media interviews, these were people who were appealing for the return of a loved one, yet were subsequently found out to be involved in yes. their disappearance. And uh, Jared Baden Clay is a good example of that. I don't know if you remember the Queensland case. Yeah, absolutely. Where, yeah, um, so there was one doorstop interview. And I, was, I was contacted by a detective uh, there and they said, look, Steve, have you been following this? And I said, uh, just briefly, and I said, look, can we send you a clip? And we'd be really interested in what your, um, your opinion is. I had a look at this clip. Sorry, my mistake. It was from the media, uh, the clip. I had a look at the clip, and what had happened was he was standing under his carport, and uh, I think it was Channel 9 journalists went to interview him. I remember and, that. Yeah, and if you remember... Um, he was standing under the, the carport and the journalist asked him a question and one of the responses was, and this is before they found Alison's body, uh, his response was, I'm really worried about my children. Now, when he said, I'm worried about my children, mm. the first thing I think is, why would he, why would he differentiate between my and our children? Yeah. Mm. Um, and of course, I remember he had a big scratch down the side of his face, which he said was caused by shaving. He must have been shaving with a machete that day. Yeah. <laughs> How people respond or how people remove themselves from the equation is very important. And, and I remember another interview. It was in Sydney, uh, Kaisha Abrams, the young girl that went missing. Yes. And the mother, biological mother, and de facto boyfriend did a press conference. And um, I, I often like watching these, these press conferences because it exposes a lot of things. Mm. Anyway, the mother, she had big glasses and like was crying into a handkerchief. So you yeah. could hardly see any of her face. At one stage, the de facto boyfriend said about Kaisha, she was such a lovely girl. We really loved her. Mm. Now, loved is past tense. Love past tense. If you ever speak to a parent who's had their child abducted, they will never, ever talk past tense. Why? Because the anticipation or expectation is their child or children will be returned to life safe and well. So that's the fourth area. Uh, The paralinguistic relates to the tone, pitch, voice modulation, response latency, um, superfluous fillers and so on. So they're the, the key areas that I look for. Because um, ums and ahs and uh, extended breaks in between conversation can also lead to lead you to believe that potentially they might be creating the story. Is that a is that a fair yes. assessment? Yeah. 
world? Yes and no. Yep. Um, that's why this is quite so important to benchmark because let's just say I'm interviewing somebody and they use a lot of ums and ahs. I ask them questions about a particular event and they use a lot of ums and ahs. That tells me nothing. That yep. tells me that's part of their normal vernacular, yep. part of their normal delivery paralinguistic style. Yeah. So what's important is to look for changes or deviations from that. Yeah. So, I mean, if I'm thinking of something to say, let's just say I'm fabricating a, a, a false response. It does take cognitive loading, but sometimes people may infuse the conversation with unnecessary or superfluous fillers. And I remember uh, interviewing one girl uh, in relation to a theft, and she, instead of saying ums and ahs, she would use the word basically. Oh. Well, basically, I did this, or basically, I did that. Now, she wasn't doing that before. So that's a shift in that paradigm that we're looking for. Um, not only that, but I think it's important to stress, it, it, we're not just looking solely for verbal response. We're looking for holistically a number of behaviours. So if I ask somebody a question and they say, well, why is that important? At the same time, maybe crossing their arms, moving back, mm. non-frontal alignment, uh, no uh, eye contact, whilst putting their hand to their face and avoiding the question altogether. Well, red flags should go up. That's pretty obvious that they're in avoidance or um, deflecting. Right. I want to know what is it about my question that induced that change in behaviour. Also, why are they not answering that question? Hmm. Yeah, this is this is fabulous. I never thought about that concept where you just find what's the person's base level where they how they normally operate and then then when you start asking questions from there you can see the changes that's that's really handy i've always thought oh you just look straight at the body language but yeah Yeah. that's great you have to understand the baseline first thanks for listening to the leader flow podcast if you found our content valuable you can subscribe and give us a five-star review so others can benefit from the content too All our episodes and other valuable Leaderflow information can be found on our website, leaderflow.com.au.